This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back to the Macmillan Conversation Maker Podcast. Today we have a recording from our Authors at Macmillan presentation series. This one is with Troy Schultz. Ride down Wisconsin back roads to old men's backyards, roadside taverns, and the apartments of lost loves. Troy Schultz offers reflection, foresight, and clarity in his relatable and honest verse. You can also see the video of the presentation on our YouTube channel. Also, check out our website for upcoming events and author events at macmillanlibrary.org. Follow us on Twitter at macmillanlibrary. We also post podcast updates on our podcast Twitter handle at macmillanpodcast. And check us out on Facebook at Macmillan Memorial Library. And now, here's Troy Schultz. Thanks for coming out, everybody, to our Authors at Macmillan series. It's uh, the final one for the year. We'll have more authors coming up next year, so look for those. And today we have Troy Schultz, who is a lifelong Wisconsin resident. He is currently a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin Fox Valley, where he also edits the nationally recognized Fox Cry Review. His interests and influences include garage rock, vinyl LPs, found objects, the paranormal, abandoned places, folklore, old cemeteries, and the number five. (laughs) His poems, stories, and reviews have all appeared in Seattle Review, Nerve Cowboy, Rattle, Slipstream, Chiron Review, Word Riot, Fish Drum, Midwestern Gothic, and several others since 1997. He was nominated in 2012 for a Pushcart Prize by Slipstream Literary Magazine and is the author of two chapbooks, A Field of Bonfires Sings by Wolf Angel Press 99 and Good Friday by Tamifier Mountain Poetry 2005. He currently resides in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and we're lucky enough to have him here tonight. Give him a round of applause, please. Well, thanks for showing up on this cold evening, um, winter in Wisconsin. It's uh, not pleasant, and we we live in a state where being outside too long can kill you. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? It's nuts. Crazy. Well, I was going through, I'm going to read, and I'm going to read, of course, my book, which is on sale on the table next to me here. There's some other freebies, bookmarks, and whatnot. And uh, but I was going through a lot of my works and a lot of new stuff. And it appears I got a lot of winter poems. And I thought, that's, that's how perfect is that? Let's do the winter poems. So uh, I'm going to start off with one that's going to be appearing shortly, I believe, in the current view out of Kansas. And it's uh, called Three Scenes for a Wisconsin Winter. What sort of a curse could fall upon someone to make them park their camper in the Marshfield County Fairgrounds throughout the month of January when the wind bends window panes 
and drifts rise and dance like ghost cotillions. It must have been biblical. The funeral home across Highway 13 is lit like an upper-class motel. A suicide, plastic bag, and suffocation. Not the ideal way to exit, but effective if you're seeped in desperation. I wonder if he was too drawn up in this season of endurance, where the sky and ground are often the same color, and even blue sky days of sun are cold enough to kill. I'm talking to a trucker at my second job. He's a southerner and believes we live in God's country, but concedes that he doesn't understand why every kind of store sells hard liquor or the point of ice fishing. <laughs> but there's faith in driving 4x4 trucks across Lake Winnebago, where shanty villages grow. Men of patience escaping their marriages, sit inside drinking beer and brandy, dreaming idly of next summer's cucumbers and tomatoes, while sturgeon hover weightlessly below, gazing through ancient eyes. Normally I would practice and organize, but I feel like preparation is for cowards, so, yeah. There's nothing creative in it either. You're right, there isn't. My kind of audience, good deal. Uh, many years ago I lived here, back in ancient times known as the late 80s and early 1990s. and. Uh, I worked at what was Cops Food Center. I think it's still Cops Food Center, isn't it? Uh, I got some people here that are shaking their head. They're no, no, I don't Is it? Okay, well, there you go. And uh, a few times I had the uh, <clears throat> dubious advantage of the dubious pleasure of uh, apprehending shoplifters. I got to tackle one one time. And I want to say that memory is kind of a strange thing, but I want to say it was Christmas Eve, I'm not sure, it might have been, but um, we tackled him and we apprehended him, brought him into the manager's office and he was sitting there waiting and here it turns out it was Christmas Eve and he was, uh, he uh, shoplifted one of those cheap toys in the cheap toy aisle and I imagine it was probably for one of his kids or something or something, that's what I like to think and I felt bad about that. And Years later, I wrote a poem about it, because really into the memory thing. I like to collect memories because you never know when they'll change, because memory is like one big telephone game. You, uh, the more you think about your memories, the more they become memories you're thinking of. Not necessarily the truth, but there you have it. Um, this one was published in uh, a literary magazine of uh, the United Kingdom. It's called Tackling Shoplifters. Pushing shopping carts in the snow, a thermos of schnapps hidden from the managers in the parcel pickup area. It was three below, windshield inclusion. This is how I celebrated the death of the 1980s. Working part-time, tackling shoplifters no younger or poorer than I, singing to myself in the back room, feeling as lost as a chance with a drunken dream girl who had no chance to find me again once the cops closed the party down. We drank together, all of us, 24-hour lost souls, made mixtape soundtracks of the hours and days we'd kill, those promises spilling off beer-heavy tongues, wasting our life in the frozen food aisles with box cutters, 
hoping the 90s and our bad luck would finally pay off in some dim way. That night, a rented motel room, a bathtub of ice and bottles, captured and lost somewhere on video. We held on to our lives at that point, like icicle adorned handles of shopping carts. Outside during the last day of December, or maybe the ankles of a panicked kid falling face first on hard on the tile, broke and desperate for a pack of Marlboro lights. Mm -hmm. This next poem is probably gonna be in my next book coming out uh, later this coming year. Uh, it was also published in a magazine out of the UK called Seams. And it was published someplace too in the United States. I'm trying to think of where right now, but it doesn't come to me at the moment. It's called Obituary of a Mill Town. This is a town of lost dog posters and abandoned cars. Brick factories watch the dead and dying with cataract windows broken out of boredom. Machines and break room guts collect the grimy residue of neglect and lost stability. Old men get and stay drunk in taverns before noon, dreaming of glasses of rain and new wounds bleeding. They stop punching clocks but are far from through making sure their wives cry. For how else can they be positive that they truly love them? It's only when lightning fragments the sky and September rain falls like penance that we feel both safe and haunted, like the slumbering rabbit out of the owl's reach. There is a murmured poetry where the streets start to flood and streetlight reflection makes the turn lanes impossible to identify. There's music of white box signs igniting against the gray and purple evening. This is why people talk to headstones and plead negotiations before they die. It's so damn hard to leave the familiar repetition of this terrifying world behind us. Well, let's lighten the moment up for you with some breakup poems. How about that? We're really, really getting the cheerful stuff out of the way here. So here we go. Now we're going to get to the, the good stuff. Now, seriously, though, I said, if I dropped over tomorrow dead, I'd probably say, you know, if you could be lucky, you have like the three things you can write that you're really proud of. I can go and say, yeah, I did a good job of that. And uh, this is probably one of them. This is one that I haven't rewritten, one that I've kept the way it is throughout the years. And it's in my, my book, my first full-length book. It's called Forget About the Sound of Her Voice When It's 3 a.m. and Snowing. Instead, concentrate on how the house across the way resembles a wistful rectangular skull, windows given eyes of intellect by way of electric holiday candles. Imagine a blizzard as falling purity, reflecting streetlight, a glowing gift, teaser of dawn. Enjoy the lack of headlights, a police or ambulance siren, siren, the sole whisper proof of the living. Instead, brace yourself for these colorless months and abbreviated days. Relearn to sleep in the middle of a quiet queen-size bed, dreaming of lilacs, mosquitoes, and rain. Gotta keep our eyes on the, the mosquitoes and rain. Gotta keep our eyes on springtime. Here's another one, a friend of mine who has a podcast, uh, featured this poem on his podcast, and 
pretty grateful for that. He did a good job reading it, probably better than I do. It's called Single. All I'm trying to say is I don't miss the gleaming knives that grew from our tongues. I do miss your arms after dark, but I traded our lives for a one-bedroom apartment, no lease, paid water, with appliances and self-cleaning oven. And tonight, I'm too far gone on this brandy. What I mean to tell you is the moon panicked last night, and my heart raised hell like a jail drunk who even after all the beatings refuses to go down. Time for some new stuff. New to me and to you. Um, I was watching a documentary the other day and about a true American hero and uh, one that's kind of forgotten and I haven't really thought about that much anymore. True American hero. Evil Knievel. This is called Five Short Poems About Evil Knievel. His motorcycle danced behind him like unforgiving sins and fell upon him like a psychotic lover. His rocket cycle never cleared the divide, so the snake opened its unhit jaws to greet him. Broken bones and welded back, disciples of self-annihilation and gravity's pain offer you tribute. Hired thugs and aluminum bats were the tools of your literary critique. You were good, bad, not evil, merely a son of a bitch spliced with the DNA of a cat. Your star-spangled outfit and cycle exhaust made America forget the smell of napalm and burning draft cards. Actually, I read a couple biographies of him, and he was actually kind of a son of a bitch, but, yeah, kind of a bastard, but he was good away dead. This is written over the summertime. It's, uh, I spent a week in Chicago, and if you ever spend a week in Chicago and you're not used to being in a big city for a week or more, you start to miss certain things, and you get a little bit uh, claustrophobic. And this is one of those nights this is what 1 a.m. sounds like to a visitor in Chicago. It's not the low whine of police and ambulance sirens. We have those in Oshkosh. It's the blunt hum of the AC shuddering and wheezing like a black lung victim. It's a drip, drip of sweat upon me. It's the lack of dollars and direction, concrete, glass, and steel spiraling to clouds. Where the hell are the trees, the squirrels, and lakes? It's falling to sleep in a city without eye contact and waking to the rage of traffic. Feel the night, respect its rusted offerings. I write a lot of poems about dogs. I don't know why. 
I started out as a cat person, and I'm kind of a cat person too, but dogs are just easier to write about. In fact, um, I have two dogs. I take them to the dog park on occasion, and uh, you think dog people be normal, but they're not. You go to the dog park and you try not to make too much human contact because it gets into kind of weird situations sometimes. I, I was with my two dogs one time and they were both kind of like freaking out because they're not used to being socialized. And so I'm just standing there looking at them, trying to make them fetch things which they have no concept of. And I'm like, okay. This guy comes up to me and he has two uh, German Shepherds. And I'm like, oh, great, that's nice, German Shepherds. They seem normal enough. They always do it first. And, uh, we got a little conversation. He's like, you know what you gotta do is you gotta take those dogs on a trail, you gotta walk them. I'm like, oh. He goes, yeah, they get nervous staying in one spot. You gotta move them around a little bit. I'm like, okay. So we hit the trail. And uh, it was fine, I enjoyed it. We did the whole trail, came back, it was a nice spring day, and he was there with his dogs playing catch with his two German shepherds. And I was like, yeah, he's like, how'd it go? I'm like, my God, they're, they're more relaxed now, they're very comfortable. Hey, well, thanks. Thanks for the advice. That was very good. And he goes, no problem. He goes, dogs are just like people. I thought about that, and I'm like, yeah, dogs are kind of like people. They like praise. They're they like to be loved. They have emotions. He goes, and they're sexual deviants. <laughs> wasn't really what I was thinking, but okay. Uh, I'm gonna move aside now. Sort of make an exit here, but. Dog people are strange. Don't think they're normal, because not all of them are. Beware the dog park. This one I wrote many years ago. It's in my first chapbook, which is out of print. It's called Dog Angels. Street dogs multiply in September. Each roadside, vacant lot, construction site, swells with four-leg beatniks and bluesmen hustling about nose to earth, manic-eyed for hope. I think of Sunday school. Our priest owned a poodle, mixed breed, brought her to class, allowed her to shoelace tug of war, still foolishly insisted that dogs remain soulless. From kitchen windows, vespers arrive in sweet molasses time. I watch straggling strays dart into night song. I understand now, all souls must sometimes search for peace among gutters, wedging muzzles in nooks and dumpsters, grinning solace under streetlight, howling incisor hymns. There must be canine seats prowling with alarm clock hearts, spraying truth and urine among the trees and sidewalk, primal seraphim stalking shelter tile floors, making music with claws, lending sleep to inmates enduring destroyed hours, waiting out the needle's edge of darkness. From dimness of last sight and smell they appear, black hunters with furnace eyes lending strength. At the moment of grill and bumper impact, they clamp unworldly jaws upon neck and scruff, leaving bone and flesh on asphalt, sending spirit to sunlight and fields, a banquet of smells, all senses exploding in a joy without language. Among high grass, a master's voice calls, carries homeward, twitches hind legs of the living through dreamscapes. 
This is kind of based on a uh, real-life incident. It's uh, kind of self-explanatory. It's called Black Ice. It's also my first chapbook. She keeps her son's room like jarred rows of preserves, unused but always on display. She dusts the gold and silver trophies on his dresser weekly and stares at them, hoping each faceless athlete replica will turn its shining head and offer answers. The calendar girl above December, wet yellow bikini and parted lips, lies frozen on the beach in 1985. On first snowfall nights, she enters the room and turns on the lights, wishing to find him on the bed and staring at the walls. She sits beside his desk and begs him to stay in tonight. He explains the reason why he should not take the keys. Her voice lifts in disabled anger as northern winds rush against the glass and ambulances sirens scream and climb up and onto the interstate. I promise somebody one of these days I'll write a happy poem. Happy poems for y'all. I'm working on it. Well, here's one that people might say is kind of pessimistic due to the, the title, but I think it's one of my more uh, life-affirming poems. It's, uh, it's off my end of my book, which is on for sale, and it's uh, kind of an answer poem to uh, another poem uh, one of my favorite poets wrote. His name's Don Winter. And he lives in the Upper Peninsula, and he's brilliant. If you ever run across any of his books, he's strictly in a small press, but if you run across any of his work anywhere, just check it out. It's incredible. And it's called Even the Cemeteries Were Once Brand New. I'm no longer young, but somehow I've managed to dodge real tragedy. This much is bearable, the promise of passings. Daily troubles consistent as rain. Still tomorrow's injuries are flashing blades like back alley thieves. It's minutia of trials that will make you lose your mind if you dwell on them too long. A lifetime of paper cuts, unexpected bills, blown transmissions, and emergency room runs. Simple mistakes lying before us like wrapped packages are what are meant to save us. Disposable moments of lightning ecstasy that make us clutch onto life like a lover in an airport. Someone once told me, it seems bad enough now, but wait another year. This won't matter anymore. And you'll have a whole new set of troubles to worry about. We lose ourselves wishing on dead stars still shining laughing into the black drawer of midnight, the ferocious beauty of all that is temporary. Basically, that means live your life. Be happy. In case you know. Um, as an undergraduate, I worked a lot of jobs, a lot of summer jobs. Some were nasty, but... Looking back, this is the best time of my life. And one in particular was, yeah, I apologize, I'm dealing with the cold here right now, so 
Bear with me a little bit. So I used to come back in this area during the summertime. I went to school and got my undergraduate degree at UB Oshkosh, but I'd come here in the summertime and sometimes work at whatever I could find. And one of these jobs took me to Adams County. And Adams County has a bit of a reputation, but again, self-explanatory. This one's called Adams County, Wisconsin, summer 1994. The punch clock on the grime cake wall offered me three hours until the last call. I drove from the factory streaked and blackened with asphalt sealant, like the second shift undead, to drink cheap rail mixers and smoke camel lights with the other breathing, bleeding ghosts at roadside taverns. Sunlights would find me with a carry-out 12-pack of Old Style back at a co-worker's trailer home, falling asleep under the box air conditioner on a slipcover sagging sofa. Other nights I'd drive the back roads beyond the county line through the haze of late summer night heat, mumbling a blood alcohol prayer, left hand on the wheel, the other reaching for the backseat cooler. I'd drive until a tinge of orange, which orange whisper crept up behind the jack pine silhouette of forest spotted with unmarked graves of informants from Chicago, brought north in luxury cars, gun barrels pressed against their temples, incoherent, pissing themselves proudly, maybe calling out a final plea bargain for God to save them from hell's tired yawn. I was younger than and lost, drinking, driving, waiting, believing that nothing good could come of anything I did under that heavy wolf moon that followed me to sunrise and sleep. Those nights were graphite, greasing the machinery in my waking hours, avoiding friction of pieces around me, susceptible to flame. I'm going to do a few more here. Yeah, sure, we'll do this. This is the title of my book. Called Biographies of Runaway Dogs. These humid July afternoons are meant for remembering women who may have well long forgotten you and minor miracles you were once an unfit witness for. It's too early to go out and too late to plan anything that might salvage the day. You think about a story your once possible wife told you, a childhood memory about a neighborhood dog neglected, who made a run for freedom after well over a year of straining against the chain so driven that the spike screwed into the Wisconsin clay dirt in a kennel left open was ripped from the earth. And so he ran, directionless but hard, a life behind chain links. Ask yourself, what would you do? Across the burnt grass yard, through the ditch and onto the highway, blossoming with raw joy, almost across from the chain hooked a passing truck, his neck snapped, a violent somersault, dragged a few yards, killed. You consider that dog and the woman who could have been your wife and raise a toast to them in your mind. Afternoons like this, you still wish you were out of your mind, still able to afford all you believe you could lose. 
um, I like abandoned places. I like empty buildings. I like empty, good enough factory buildings. And I, I love empty farmhouses. I like driving along and seeing them. And and it's so tempting. I always want to stop in and break it, I guess, is the term, and just explore, you know, trying to fall through the floorboards. I measure some neat stuff in there to be salvaged most times, but there's always that no trespassing sign, which always bothers me. It's always got that that sign. It's like, who really cares? Or it's all in the middle of nowhere. No one's bothered. Just, I suppose lawsuits waiting to happen, but still, it doesn't make me not want to uh, just kick open the riding door, walk inside, and see what's happening in there. This is called empty farmhouses. You see them off highways marked with carcasses of dead deer, eyes still open, tongues out, bemused by minuscule length of their disposable meat lives. Scattered wrecked holdouts along the back roads that used to be the highways. Gutted, flaking lead paint, buckled roof and doorways with cataract windows. The thin scar of gravel through tall grass like a fossilized snake marks the ghost of a driveway. I eye them on my drive home from wherever crisis I may have lived that day. I want to take the first exit, find my way to the forgotten highway, follow that scar of gravel as far as a snake allows, wade through the cut grass and paintbrush, survey the stone foundations fashioned by hands now bone and dust, step across the threshold like a widower groom, breathe in the decay in old memories like a wine snob in a goblet, Bask in the gutted solitude. Weave your way through the rooms asunder. Pick up broken dishes, found objects waiting for human touch once again. Take a seat on an unbroken chair and watch the autumn sunset through a shattered window pane. Listen to something crawl and chew within the walls. Tell yourself that only the insane choose to not be hermits. This is a poem about moving. It's called Expect Rain. You can expect the couch that fit through the door with exact precision to have somehow expanded. Expect rain on the day of borrowed open air trailers. You never leave spaces completely absent of the residue of a life lived. Abandoned lamps with shades tilted at a rakish angle. Theme park coffee cups. That shot glass unused in the cupboard untouched unless left for the next. That rotary phone you found in the attic, waiting on long distance calls from Edison's ghosts. Try as you might to be prepared months ahead of time, you will scrub and scrape and haul until you feel your heart eat itself mid-pulse if you don't find a way of getting out before nightfall. Expect a security deposit to never find its way to your new mailbox. You find yourself in an age where it seems too late to be a nomad in exit, moving in together, and all too often, moving out alone. Mm. I guess I'd be ill-advised not to read at least one poem that's Rather upbeat, rather life affirming. Um, 
this one's also probably going to be in my next book, which is going to be thicker if nothing else. Um, it's called Insomniac Astronomy. We search out, search out the dim flicker of Venus when it is too late. Seek out constellations of suns long dead, tearing through science, hanging like grains of glass above us. We are exhausted and driven heavy miles. We fall into bed and I listen to the sound of you falling like stars left uncounted. I adjust my weight beside you, pray against any 3 a.m. lost souls who don't hold our best interests at heart. My eyes close as shadows scrawl a sick doubt, because shadows cannot touch love. Love is full currency, it transforms, but never loses value. And when someone loves you, you best take notice, never ignore it. Treat it like an earthquake that needs to replace and rearrange. Fold us against the regulation of all that ignites and cools. The suns we attempt to identify when our eyes are burning, and the sky contains each and every color at once. I was talking to one of my students recently, and she was complaining about a date she went on. I'm like, yeah, do people still go on dates? She goes, yeah. Well, how do you do that? Through Tinder? Hmm. How'd that work out? It's awkward. I know, well, dating still sucks. That's good. Good to know. Nothing ever changes. I wrote this a few months ago, just out of the blue. This is called First Date. <clears throat> kind of a fun little thing. First date. Outside the sun has dropped through asphalt. Gut level honesty becomes a liability. We talk after midnight, thinking, pausing, tossing dead brandy. Lust is a gargoyle riding the shoulders of angels, a gun barrel against the forehead of comfort. Try this night on for size and switch off your lights. We could fall down the stairs of this life holding on to each other. She told me to walk west until I can't remember my hands on her skin. And I don't like the moon when it hangs like a shard of porcelain. And yes, I love the sound of forgotten guitars. Why must I keep up this talking? I can't be the one to entertain you. I'm not getting paid a union salary for this. Speak and tell. Stop fingering that glass of wine and bail me out of this. It's too soon since I lost her. You can't expect my charm to last. A gold-tossed neighborhood, an hourglass of hearts thirsting, the world's great curtain of sleep, my latest, latest, last chance. One last one. Um, I wrote this one about an old landlord I had in Oshkosh when I moved the first time. And he was quite a guy, he was very old at the time. And he used to raise my rent every time something would go wrong in the house I lived in, which wasn't my fault because the house was like ancient and falling apart. And he would kind me on money, but I'd still go over and play cards with him and his friends at night. And he was a World War II vet. And I'd go over and he'd want to lay a cigarette, so I'd have to shove his oxygen before I could lay a cigarette out for him. He was one of those guys. And uh, I spelled World War II one time. I'm like, what was World War II like? He goes, best goddamn time of my life. I wish that war never ended. We need people like him. <laughs> he died on my birthday a number of years ago. Eulogy for Landlord from Louis Borden. His last advisory gems were, number one, get yourself a honey to share the rent with and nothing else. 
Number two, you're one hell of a good looking guy, but lose about three pounds. Number three, get a goddamn life. He died on my birthday. A few things more bracing than housebound men hooked to oxygen telling you to get a life. He was forgiven tenfold, last of a kind, choosing truth over plastic tact, taking puffs and drags off hand-rolled cigarettes and cases of blats, dealing cribbage cards until its sweetest end. As a kid, he loved comic books and to steal free into movies. He made World War II sound like the time of his life, a heavy artillery frat party in France with sweet women, unworldly wine, and nightly dances. The plainest girl was always the one to pick. She would cradle your gut-hearted, your bored-gutted heart, listen to your broken French, love you with an instinctive power that pretty girls can never understand. Thank you. Time to help yourself to the cookies and coffee and the palm. Get some palm juice back there. One glass that's still the last whole week. Load of vitamins. Make you jump faster or run faster. It's great. Okay. Any questions? Anything? No questions? I have two. Really? A follow-up Jim McCarthy from CNN. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> get out of my conference. Um, so why did you get the writing bug, and did you start with poetry, or did you grow into poetry? Um, I don't like the writing bug. Probably in grade school, and I remember one time, we had to have a list of words for like spelling class, and Catholic grade school, and one of the things we had to do is like make a story out of them. And me and my friend Pete Stojak collaborated on a story one time. And next thing I know, we get called in the principal's office, and I actually got sent to a psychologist. <laughs> True story. <laughs> That's why I do my talent. <laughs> I, I went to uh, college, and I just sort of took an English class, and I was off to the races, and it just happened, and I started writing again. So. It's better than bowling. No, nothing's better than bowling. It's better than bowling for me. <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm from Adam's <laughs> So you know about the, the, the graves of the uh, hitmen from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty haunted. Yeah. And do you teach writing or literature at all? Um, do you remember the 70s TV show Welcome Back, Cotter? Yeah. That's my life. <laughs> I thought you did Poet Society, but it's Welcome Back Hotter all the way. It's, yeah, that's what it is. I have several of them. So, so. Okay, awkward silences. Oh, at hand, yes. What did, what did the two of you say? What was your point or your message in that little story that got everybody so... It was something about a that decapitated people and left their bodies on a hill, and it was... Pretty nuts. I mean, I wish we would have kept it because it's like we probably would have had contracts signed today in this day and age. We'd be on YouTube or something. It'd be great. We'd be like ten years old. It was wonderful. Yeah. Did, did your friend go on to fight also? Or? Um, no. He's more intelligent than I am, and probably more creative too. So, yeah, he's 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 doing well for himself though. Yeah, I talk to him on the phone about once a week, and we talk about stupid stuff. Lately, we have a game going. It's like I turned fifty last year, so. We have this little game going called uh, uh, Younger Then That I Am Now. And uh, two examples of people that were younger then that I am now, all right? Marlon Brando in The Godfather, 48 years old, younger than I am now. 
okay? Wilford Brimley in Cocoon, <laughs> younger than I am now. What? The captain from the freaking love boat, 46 years old. Oh my God, I looked at the guy on TV at the time, he looked like the death creepers creeping up behind him. It's like, my God, really? Seriously, 46 years old? Younger than I am now. B. Arthur is Maud, younger than I am now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that this horrible, horrible old lady on the front. Mm. And it said, do you remember me? And then you open it up. I was either behind you in high school. That's probably true. <laughs> I look around me, people my age, and it's like, all these old people are so boring. It's like, wait a minute here. Oh, God, that's right. We are. No, no, I don't. I made a mistake. I read, I get reading it at a nursing home recently and I thought I was being funny because I'm trying to like be funny and whatever and I'm like yeah look at all you out there I feel young all of a sudden it's like crickets chirping it's like oh god <laughs> now I'm gonna read about death it's like mm. that's all I got all right talk amongst yourselves Thanks for tuning into the podcast we hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation we believe in the power of community and story here at the library, and we have plenty of stories in book, ebook, CD, DVD, and magazine form. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale courses, as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the information desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast.